The gospel reading is from Matthew 5, 1 to 6. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. The Gospel of Jesus Christ. I was just thinking, Carlson's, how weird that must have sounded to say I didn't necessarily want to pray for you. And what I meant was I didn't want to co-op the moment, you know, or insert myself in front of Scott, but I consider it my privilege to pray for you guys. And you know I love you deeply and we'll miss you. It's been so great to have you here these uh, couple of months. Um, we are, uh, or I am, doing something a little bit different this morning because um, all of you intrepid souls that brave the, you know, the treacherous roads to get here. Uh, as strange as it might seem, uh, last night we weren't sure if we were going to have the service. And as you can tell from the title of the sermon and from the quotes, or you will be able to tell as we go through the sermon, they don't actually sync up. And that's because um, this is a, going to be a pretty important, um, I think, uh, sermon on beauty and on body image, and I did not want to kind of press ahead and do that when a third of the church would be here. Uh, And so, you're all here, but last night I decided instead just to write a different sermon. Um, So, which the good news is that it's going to be a little bit shorter than normal. The bad news is, is that I don't know how this is going to go. all of the words haven't necessarily taken up full residence in my brain, um, so it's going to be a fun experience, I think. But we started this series uh, that we've been calling Being Well five weeks ago, and I stood here and shared about my journey, um, my very destructive relationship, as it were, with alcohol. And it resonated with a lot of people. And it resonated not just with people here, and it resonated not just because everyone here is a raging alcoholic. Perhaps that's true, I don't know. Uh, But I think it resonated not just here, but I continue to get notes and emails um, because I think you understood, you understand the divided self that I was talking about that maybe you experience that anxiety and that self-loathing and that constant inner critic that comes along with it, to know that we have these two people that are vying for the identity of the person and that we present oftentimes out of the false one, out of a constructed one, and that that's the one that most people interact with and most people get to know and you perhaps connected with that and see that in your own life. At least I would think so, because as far as I know, you're all human beings in this room. Alcohol or any other substance we may insert into that sort of situation, substance, relationship, any stimuli that we use to cope with this inner turmoil and this inner disorientation aren't 
in themselves the real issue. They're not the real problem. And we'll never experience true and lasting change and true wholeness by just trying to curb the problematic behavior. This is what we in the church talk about in terms of using the law to answer a gospel problem. And it's something that even though we identify, we continue to do. Because in most churches that you will walk into, the law, that is the moral code, the way that you are supposed to behave in this community is front and center. And that's what you encounter first. So maybe there was some sense of relief in coming into this place five weeks ago or listening online that there was some relief in not finding the law presented as if it is the sum and substance of what Christianity is, that is, moral codes and behavioral standards by which we kind of climb the ladder of spirituality and the solution to change. I hope that there was some sense of relief from that. But having said that, I also need you to know that we don't need to relax too much because the real solution is far more difficult Anyone can get good at obeying the rules. Anyone can get good if you tell them the ladder to climb to start climbing. It's easy. But the real solution is far more difficult. And you probably know this already because you probably have a tendency to hide. We hide and we pretend because we know that real wholeness has a cost and real wholeness takes transparency. And it takes opening ourselves up and taking a risk that might lead to some measure of rejection. And the way that we've been talking about this idea of wellness is really wholeness. It is the reintegration of body and spirit. It's the regathering of our private and our public worlds and trying to eliminate the distance between the two. And in fact, it's living out of the person that you were created to be, that God loves the person that you are because he made you. Did you hear the language of the psalm? How wonderfully and awesomely that you were made, and that that's the person that God wants you to be, not this false self that you've created or many versions of false selves. And so before we relax too much because, hey, we're not leading with the law, that is, this set of guardrails that become very narrow, the real solution is far more difficult because it is through the treacherous trail of transparency. And it only comes by opening us, ourselves up more and more fully to one another and more and more fully to God and that those two things interrelate and they presume upon one another. And at some point, level, because I know myself, and I share the space that you occupy as human beings, I believe that we all want to be transparent. We all want to be fully known, but we also want to be fully loved. And oftentimes, those two things in past relationships, in past churches, and in our own life, because we become the worst critics of ourselves, those two things are separated. And so, over time, we learn to settle. We learn to settle for just a taste, just a hint. If I can get this person to love me, 
Even if it's loving just a version or a partial reality, then I'm okay with that because the fear of losing that is not nearly as strong as the fear of actually being rejected for who I am in reality. We settle because it's risky. To give people access gives them the opportunity to hurt us. To give a church community access to your inner life gives them an opportunity to hurt you. That's the nature of love, that when we love someone and we share that loving relationship, it is actually in the, inside of those bounds where we open ourselves up to the greatest hurt. We can become most hurt within intimate relationships. And so hiding isn't altogether an unwise strategy. And we learn to do it because most communities, maybe I should say many communities, if not most, they form around some shared identity, biological, ethnic, political, philosophical, theological, that there are some set of shared characteristics that are valued by that community, and they set up guardrails that over time begin to narrow and constrict And that belonging is based upon some presumption of sameness. So it's a belonging that's based upon the characteristics that you have that cohere and align with the community standards that are valued in that particular place. And these theological, political bunkers that we have seen just proliferate in this age to where everyone is dividing to the far extreme to live in communities of sameness because we feel safe there. Research is showing by Brene Brown and others that that's actually a very lonely existence. And why is it lonely? Why is it lonely to live in gated communities and communities of, of sameness? It's lonely because we know that our acceptance in those communities is based upon a partial reality. It's based upon a version of ourselves that we project while at the same time we guard the other parts. We don't let all of ourselves inhabit those communities because if you allow your full self and all that you are and all of your problems into that community, chances are your belonging is threatened. You can get hurt, you can get shamed, you can get disciplined by the church, you can get excised. And so those guardrails that really the law is in the Bible, which are healthy in terms of this is the way that leads to life, this is the way to live that leads to wholeness, become more and more narrow, at least in our perception to where we feel like they're a straitjacket. And so to question it, To have different ideas, to bring your whole self in, threatens your belonging. And that's why those communities of sameness are so lonely. Now, I shared my journey with you not so that I could be the hero in my own story as much as I would like that. And as much as I'm tempted to sort of mythologize this own journey, but to try and convey that we are deadly serious here at InTown about being a safe place to explore 
And yes, to find faith, to arrive somewhere, and also to grow. That we're serious about this safety. And so not to be a hero in any sense, but I want my sharing and being transparent up here to reflect something of value in our community. That we have to take risk to validate the core values of the communities that we inhabit. And that you're in a place right now where you ain't got nothing on the pastor in terms of shortcomings. And I want you to believe that, that there's so much about my inner life that I'm giving you a window into that I hope gives you a representative sample, but you don't know all of me. And I guarantee you that I can go toe-to-toe with your brokenness. I can go toe-to-toe with all of your shortcomings and all of your sin. And if I still have my job, then maybe it's safe. Maybe it's safe. It's not wise to open up to just anyone. But it's our hope, it's our aspiration here at InTown that there's a baseline level of safety that allows you to pursue truthfulness about yourself that leads to eventual wholeness because you come here as a more integrated person. You're more willing to share fullness, the full story about who you are. And over time, repeating that, because this is an embodied type of learning, it's not something that we can just memorize, that we have to practice it. And over time, embodying the practice of saying the truth about ourselves and believing things about God and about this community begins to collapse that distance between the true and false selves to where it's hard to find how they differentiate. And I think part of this comes, at least begins, in our conception of who God is because we're not suggesting here that in town is anything dramatically special, that you should salute this church. What we are trying to do is just to embody the characteristics of how God operates with humanity and the type of communities that He forms, that that's the foundation of being well. It is living out of the reality of who God is and His character And the psalm reading actually showed, we didn't read the whole psalm, but it showed that this journey to wholeness, this journey to an integrated life is actually very treacherous and actually very painful. The part that we read, at least the first part, it sounds like this high and holy praise. It's something that we should aspire to. If we could just have a sense of God like David did, look at the way that he praises God and he talks about God's attributes, but there is a lot of tension here that doesn't come across very well in the English and because we read parts of it. His meditation upon God's unparalleled omniscience is not simply an act of praise. It is not simply an act of adoration. God's omniscience actually terrifies David. Where can I go from your spirit, verse 7? Where can I flee from your presence? He's not saying, God, I'm just so delighted that wherever I go, you are there. 
It just brings a smile to my face, and I'm so comforted by the fact that you know every thought, word, and motive. That is not what he's saying, at least not initially. Because if it were, then we would think of David in some kind of superhuman sense, because that's not our experience, that anyone that knows not only our behavior but our motives, that's terrifying. No, he's saying, in saying, where can I flee? He's saying, how can I get away? How can I avoid his penetrating gaze? He sees all of my faults and all of my imperfections and even sees my motives. He sees my thoughts before they form, my words before they pass through my lips. He's hemmed in, he says. Now, companies, as you know, spend a great deal of money on marketing plans to roll out new products in the right way, to have the right sequencing, so that you know things about the product in the way that they want you to know. You don't know the whole story. They want to tell the story. And Apple is notorious about their privacy, notoriously secretive about these new features, and it creates, you know, this... so many websites that make a lot of, get a lot of hits just by giving glimpses of the case, just the little chip that's going to be in it. But you see, they want to tell the story. They don't want Gizmodo or whoever it is to tell the story. They want to tell the story. And so they spend a great deal in effort and energy maintaining those strict controls and the narrative guidelines And don't we understand that because we spend a great deal of time unveiling ourselves in the way that we want, narrating our story in the way that we want to tell it, maintaining that sort of editorial control over what people can see. And we use social media daily to release sort of strategic press releases, right? Let me tell you this little beautiful anecdote about myself. And over time, that creates this very false picture of who we are. But it gives us a sense of control, editorial control over our story. But I think that underneath that, or at least parallel to that, it also gives us a sense of of foreboding fear. Because if this is the story that we're telling, if this is our public persona, what if someone breaks in? What if someone gets beyond the press release? What if someone really sees us for who we are? Because if anyone ever does, we're sunk. So we're actually, in doing that, we're seeding our own loneliness. And this is not a preacher rant on social media. I use it. It's a tool. But it's how you use the tool. Even if no one is able to break through those press releases to get behind the wall, even if no one else knows the true us, the problem is we know. We know. And the secrets that we hold on to keep us sick. They keep us disintegrated. But here's the cool thing. Because as the psalm progresses, the deeper that David goes into this meditation, the more he recognizes not only his exhaustive omniscience, the exhaustive knowledge, but he pairs that 
with what he knows about God's character, there's this counterintuitive sense of great relief. He's discovered something that is remarkable. He's discovered a person who says that they're the God of the universe, the one person that really matters, and that person actually already knows them and doesn't reject them. You discern my thoughts from far away. Even before a word is on my tongue, you know it. And there's nowhere that I can go where this isn't true. And so what began as a threat, that is I can't get away from God, now becomes this comfort because he knows God's character is this character of radical, embracing love. And so now it's when I go somewhere into the darkness, when I go into the far country, I can go there confidently knowing that I find something different than what I may have been expecting. I find a God of love. If I go up to the heavens, if I go down to the depths, that is Sheol, if I settle on the far side of the sea, that is as far as I know, the created world exists, even there, even there what? Even there I will find God's judgmental gaze. If I go across the world, even there, God will carry his list of grievances with them, with him so he can read them out to me in any place. If I go to the far side of the sea or to the depths, even there, God, you will dispense shame? That's not what he says. That's what we think. That's what we expect often. But he says, no, wherever I go, your right hand will hold me fast. That's what you discover when you go to the very links of your life, the very links of your geography, you find God there wanting to hold you fast and not let go. This picture of a parent that will not let go of their child because they don't want to let them out into this world that's going to hurt them. That's the picture that we get of God. God will not use His omniscience against you and to shame you, to harm you, or to exploit you. He doesn't relish the fact that you open up to Him so now He can berate you over all the ways that you've blown it but to hold you fast, that that's His invitation. Open up to Him so that He may hold you and not this mirage that you've created of fakeness and falsehood, but let Him hold you in your trueness, in your, in your true self. In David's depths, at His absolute worst, when His sin is in full bloom, God holds on to Him. And this utterly transforms the prayer. It begins and ends in very different places because at first David is recoiling in fear from this thought that God sees everything and I'll never get away from Him. That sense of omniscience is radically threatening and now it's radically comforting. How precious are your thoughts to me, God. How precious. This is the word that, that it talks about great value as if you would look upon a diamond and talk about how precious, how worth this is, what worth this has. And so as we move to the end of the psalm, and thankfully for you, the end of my sermon, David moves to a different posture.
posture. It is not one of, you know, cowering. It's not one of hiding. It's not one that we know if we have children, when they get embarrassed, when they feel found out, where do they go? They go hide. They go find a, an uninhabited room in the house because they're fearful. And that's the, that's the posture that David has when he begins the psalm. But now his posture is radically different. What does he say? Search me. Know me. Test me. David is saying, bring it, God, because you already know everything. I am an open book to you. And that fact does not make me scared anymore. It comforts me. Because in contrast to our experience in many, if not most, relationships, the relationship with God sinks up and holds love and acceptance together. It doesn't separate the two, that you are accepted because of how you behave and because of how you look and because of how you act. That makes you doubt love. You see, what God does is He brings it together, that those things always operate together. David says, you see all of me and you don't reject me. And this is what, friends, I think we all want. It's certainly what we all need. And part of the reason is because we're looking to counter not only the criticism out there, but we're looking to counter our own self-criticism. And the fact that we even have a term for that just boggles the mind. That we know that we live out of these divided divided existences where one part of us is critiquing the other part. We don't even know who the real me is. We need to silence that. And for me, that's what alcohol allowed me to do because it allowed me to silence, if only for a moment, those competing voices because I was alive and I was free. And as alcohol began to pump those endorphins into my brain, then I could silence the self-loathing and criticism and say, whatever, I don't care about you. And honestly, that's a a very destructive and half picture of what God's love is supposed to do to where we learn to grasp onto that so much that we're just whatever, that the self-criticism, that the criticism of others become, we grow and learn how to silence them more fully. Because you see, the only thing that alcohol demanded from me for that moment of liberation was everything. It demanded everything. It demanded me to keep going even as I knew that it was harming me and harming others. Even as I poured more and more into the healing of my inner divisions, it just drove them wider and I wanted to hide more and more. And that's what any substance any sensation, anything like that that we're looking to to heal our inner divisions will do. Anything that is short of the God that made you, who knows you and sees all. What if the way that we silence the inner critic and the critic of others is not by hiding, but it's actually by coming into the presence and the gaze of God? that it's not terrifying as we've been led to believe. 
but it's to encounter the one who sees all of our imperfections and chooses to love us anyway, who's radically committed to bringing our inner wholeness and our inner healing. There's no more need to hide, friends. And it takes practice. I think in here is the key, but we have to start the engine every day and we have to drive it. You can come before God, deeply loved, deeply accepted. You've been searched and nothing was and nothing will ever be found, excavated, brought out in counter-testimony that wasn't paid for in the sacrifice of the only one who was ever perfectly whole, the person of Jesus. And so when he says, be holy because I am holy, what he's getting at, and we'll talk more about this next week, is not ratchet up your performance, do better in the following the moral code, but it is be whole as Jesus was whole, that he took all of you into all of him and he went to the cross so that you can be eternally loved. So let's come to the table with that in mind. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would live out of the wholeness that your gospel brings, that you would teach us to pray as David did, and that you would teach us not to be content just to have thoughts of wholeness and thoughts of your love, but to live out of it. And I pray as we come to this table that you would help us to practice that, that we would take these elements into our bodies and that we would stand up and walk forward and profess with our lips and give grace and practice to the person beside us, behind us in line, knowing that we are in need of this meal and in need of this grace as much as they are. And so I pray that we would extend wholeness to them and extend the freedom to let them be themselves. Lord, help us to take off our masks as we come to this meal. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.